You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Uh, Today we'll be reading uh, Luke 4, 16 to 30 from the CSB version. Verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recover recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up to the scroll, gave it to, back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today as you listen, This scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in in your hometown also. He also said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, while the great famine came over the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, and yet no one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Uh, It's lovely to be with you. We're in a beautiful place. It's good to have fellowship together, isn't it? It's good to be able to take this very large view of God's word. We're not, in a sense, we're not going deep into God's word. We're going wide into God's word. And uh, before we get going, let's just pause again in prayer. Loving God, we thank you that you are a beautiful God, uh, beautiful in your holiness, in the glory of your majesty. And you have made a beautiful world. And we thank you that we can enjoy this lovely corner of your vast creation. We thank you for each other, the blessing of fellowship and friendship, and we thank you for your word, which is rich and deep and wide, and we'll never fully understand it, but we pray that today, again, you would give us uh, more insight into your wonderful story. And so we ask for the work of your spirit in our hearts now, and we ask that you point us to Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Well, I'm not uh, much of a TV watcher. Watch almost no TV. 
uh, except for one program. I do have to confess, there's one program I watch fairly frequently, not all the time. Um, it's incredibly boring. Uh, it basically has the same plot line every single episode. Uh, it's not much fun, but I still watch it. It's called The News. Um, I don't know why it's called The News. It should be called The Old, uh, because there's really nothing new on it. Uh, it seems to me that time after time it's predictable, discouraging, and it's not actually the whole story. Uh, usually there's some political backflip, uh, there's violence, murder, shooting, a bit of domestic violence, uh, there's economic volatility, most times each episode has economic volatility, oh, the Dow Jones is up, no the Dow Jones is down, the ASX, uh, highest it's ever been, oops no we're heading into the biggest uh, budget deficit we've ever had, oh it's just turned around, uh, we're predicting now a small surplus, so you know that just goes on, doesn't really matter which night you listen to, it's much the same, uh, and if you live here in Victoria, the most depressing part of the news comes right at the end. It's called the weather. Uh, and it's seldom an encouraging end to the episode. Now, I don't know uh, what your source of news is. ABC, um, SBS, uh, Rupert Murdoch, The Age. Chances are... Wherever you're sourcing news, it's much the same. But it seems to me news outlets don't tell us the whole story. Uh, they focus often just on stage two of the story of this world. Chaos, lots of it, in all sorts of different ways. They don't focus much on stage one. They, there are, of course, nature programs, but without any mention or reference to God, to the creator. And there's lots of relationship stuff, of course, but it's never relationship with God. It's all sorts of other relationships, and usually relationships flowing out of chaos. And so what we're getting in the news is a very potted, distorted version of the story of this world. Uh, the Bible also gives us the news. It's called good news, gospel. That's what the word gospel means, isn't it? Good news. And the Bible tells us the good news of what God is doing in this world. And the, the news on TV and, and most of the programs that we watch have very little about the last three stages of the Bible, love, purpose, and hope. And yet it seems to me that those are the things that our hearts crave. You probably feel that yourself, don't you? Crave love and purpose and hope. And chances are you won't find it on TV. I've headed up this session, Remarkable. We're looking just at one stage again in the story, the love act in the drama of redemption. And I'm calling it Remarkable uh, because it is. There's actually a 
mountain range um, in New Zealand uh, called the Remarkables. And uh, do you know why the Remarkables are called Remarkables? Uh, it's because in the 19th century there was a surveyor who discovered that the Remarkables are one of only two mountain ranges in the world that run exactly due north and south, which I guess is remarkable. Uh, but at a popular level, we tend to think of the Remarkables as the Remarkables because they're just remarkable. They're, they're beautiful. They're stunning. They're sheer. They're steep. They're magnificent. Uh, there's a ski field tucked up the top there, which is just a brilliant place to ski. The views all around are remarkable. And it's the same, I think, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of the Bible is remarkable. Uh, you kind of run out of adjectives for the news that the Bible gives us. Uh, like I say, the word gospel means good news, but good kind of undercooks it. It's stunning news. It's brilliant news. It's the most astounding, surprising, beautiful news that you could possibly hear. In Jesus Christ, God now funnels to us his goodness and his grace. And I hope whether you know the gospel inside out already, as many of you do, or whether you're quite new to what the Christian gospel is all about, I hope that this morning you have a sense of this being remarkable. Well, to think about this, we've got to think about Jesus, and we're going to think about the lead-up to Jesus, the mission of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, and the impact of Jesus. Here we go. First of all, the lead-up to Jesus' mission. You have to admit that the New Testament doesn't exactly get off to a ripper of a start. Uh, if you have a look at Matthew chapter 1, the first chapter of the New Testament is basically just a list of names. It's a chronology. So-and-so gave birth to so-and-so, gave birth to so-and-so, gave birth to so-and-so. It's not exactly exciting. And yet, it is telling a very important part of the story. It's saying to us that Jesus, who will be introduced at the end of that genealogy, Jesus is coming as part of a long, long story. Uh, he is the seed of Abraham, going right back to those promises that we saw when God said that he would save a people and bring blessing to the ends of the earth. Jesus is the son of Abraham. It's telling us Jesus is the Davidic king, fulfilling that Davidic covenant that we touched on yesterday. He is the savior, it says. You'll call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins, from their chaos. His people whom he's formed out of grace, made promises, covenants with. Now comes the Savior. Actually, the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, if you look at that one, takes us back even further, beyond Abraham. It says that now here is the second Adam who will represent humankind. Here's the seed of the woman who will crush Satan's head. Here is the Son of God, God in flesh. 
So the astounding thing in terms of the Bible's big story that we're looking at is now God writes himself into the story. He sends his own son, true God, God himself, to be the main actor in the story. All the way through, the Old Testament has been anticipating that. Uh, Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. It's a great way to think about the relationship between the Old and New Testaments. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. All the way through the Old Testament, you have prophets and priests and kings who are prefiguring the prophet and priest and king who is to come. All the way through, you have types and signs and symbols foreshadowing what is to come. Jesus, who will be the true temple, who will be the true sacrifice lamb, who will be the true way to God. The Old Testament is constantly preempting, prefiguring that. Theologians call these types. We talk about typology, uh, people, institutions in the Old Testament deliberately preempting what will eventually come in the person of Jesus. Uh, will this work? We have a video clip. Have we got sound? Let's see what happens. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all, while God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job. He's the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Is that a type? See, that's not typology, it's an instinct. <laughs> Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's He's the real Passover lamb. He's, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. Isn't that a great way to read the Bible? 
Jesus, the true and better. And when Jesus comes onto the stage of redemptive history, it's as if the stage is cluttered. It's kind of exactly like this. Uh, on the stage of redemptive history, there, there are dead prophets and dead priests and chaotic people. There's, there's a temple which is about to come to an end. There are sacrifices that have been offered. There's all the stuff on stage. There are men and women who have longed for the coming of Jesus. Saints who have been persecuted, prophets who have been killed. But all has been leading up to this moment when Jesus, the Son of God, will appear on stage. There's a beautiful story near the start of uh, the, the, the story of Jesus' life. It's right near the start. Jesus is a baby and he is taken to the temple for the purification rites as a little child. And there's an old man there by the name of Simeon. And Simeon had received a vision from God that he would not die until the Messiah had come. God had revealed to him, like, you are right on the cusp of this huge moment when all the types that have been leading up to the coming of Jesus will be fulfilled and he will come. And so this old dude is hanging on, like, maybe he wants to die. He can't die until he's seen Jesus. And then one day this baby is brought to the temple for the purification rites. And this is what Simeon says, Now, Master, Lord, God, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. That is, I, now I can die, he's saying, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. He has seen the Lord. He has seen the one that everything else was leading up to. And he says, now, Lord, I can die. Now my life is complete. I've seen the Savior. So there's this enormous lead up to the coming of Jesus. And it leads, secondly then, to the mission of Jesus. Jesus began his public ministry at the age of 30. In Luke chapter 4, we read just before what he did when he went to the temple and read a Bible passage. And he read this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's the first of a number of times in the Gospels where Jesus gives his personal mission statement. Jesus is abundantly clear on what he has come to do. And isn't it wonderful what he has come to do? To preach good news, to release people, to free people, to give people life. Look at some of his other mission statements. In Mark 10, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That was his purpose. Mark chapter 2 didn't change the print under the text. This is what it really says. <laughs> it is not for those... Uh, uh, sorry, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's what he's come for. Luke 19, 
Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. John 10, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Put put those kind of verses together. Isn't it a wonderful mission that Jesus embarks on? To seek, to save, to heal, to restore, to free, to give life in abundance. Well, how did Jesus pursue that mission? We need to think about the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus is multifaceted. And the first thing he did was he lived for us. I want to emphasize that. We must remember Jesus didn't only come to die for us. We often talk about that, and rightly so. But Jesus first lived for us. And he lived the most beautiful life that any human being has ever lived. We saw that the whole story of the Bible begins with beauty. And we saw that the beauty of creation is a reflection of the beauty of God. And now God comes in the flesh. And he comes as the most beautiful person who has ever lived. There was never in Jesus' life a moment of greed. There was never a hint of lust. There was never anything remotely unclean or dodgy or questionable. You would never around Jesus ever have felt used or misunderstood. You would have sensed that you were in the presence of the most lovely, true, honest, authentic, beautiful person you had ever met. His life was full of compassion and grace, and yet he was so strong. And when he saw evil, he he was strong and courageous in fighting against what was wrong. And he lived that way. He lived this beautiful life in fulfillment of the law of God. Remember we saw that God gave this law not to save us, but to show us how to live in response to God. And we keep falling short of it. And Jesus comes and he lives the law perfectly. He fulfills the law for us. He was everything we were meant to be. He's the perfect Adam who doesn't fall when he's tempted. Adam tempted in the garden. Jesus tempted in the wilderness and he doesn't give in. He's the righteous Israel. He's the true son of God. As we'll see shortly, we don't only need Jesus' saving death. We need Jesus' perfect life. But then, in all his perfection, he suffered the most appalling death. It was appalling not because of the injustice of it. And appalling not only because of the terrible violence and the agony of crucifixion, which was the most cruel death you could inflict on someone at the time. It was appalling 
mainly because the very Son of God, true God himself, experienced the wrath of God against our sin. He was standing in our place. He was enduring hell for us. He was enduring God's anger against our rebellion and wickedness in our place. He was condemned instead of us. He was punished instead of us. And so what Jesus' life and death sets up is the most glorious spiritual transaction ever. Let's say you go to your spiritual bank account, you log into your heavenly account to uh, check how the, uh, how the funds are um, in your eternal well-being. And as you check your account, uh, you see that it is just in shocking deficit. Every sin, all the chaos of your life, all the complexity of your relationships, and every time you've stuffed up, has completely drained the account. You have clocked up enormous debt, and there's no way you could possibly trade yourself out of it. No number of good works, good credits, would ever overcome the debt. And you realize you have no option but to declare spiritual bankruptcy. We saw in stage two of the Bible story, the chaos of our sin demands confession, not cover-up. And so you've come to that sobering realization, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I can't do good to counteract the bad. I have a deep problem before God. Well, you log out, depressed at the state of your account. And then you meet Jesus. And Jesus says to you, believe in me and I will remove that debt for you. Believe in me and I will put unbelievable wealth into your account. Well, it's an outrageous claim really, isn't it? And so you ponder it and you think about it and you talk to other people about it and you check it out and you check out the claims of Jesus and you come to a point where you believe that what Jesus said is true. You believe in him. You trust him to deal with your debt. Well, you go back to your spiritual bank account, tap in your pin, And when you look at your account, you are absolutely blown away. The debt has gone. And there in your account, under your name, there are unbelievable riches. Because what has happened is all Christ's righteousness has been credited to your account. In his death, he removed the debt, and now his righteous life has been credited to you. 
And when God checks your spiritual bank account, he doesn't see a deficit. There's no deficit. It's been paid off. And God is not so unjust as to demand double payment for your sins. It has been fully paid in Christ. And now when God examines your spiritual account, your spiritual standing before God, what he sees, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is he sees the righteousness of Jesus. He sees you as perfect, as a saint, as holy as fully obedient, and he adopts you as a child in his family and treats you as his own son or daughter. I think that is remarkable. That is an astounding transaction, isn't it? And I do want to say this morning, that is true for every single one of you here who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus, your sin is gone in the sight of God. You are clean, you're holy, you're righteous before God. In God's sight, you're just as righteous as his own son, Jesus. Because he fully represents you. And if if you're here this morning and you haven't yet believed in Jesus, maybe, maybe you're still checking out Christianity and finding out what the Bible and the message of the gospel is all about. This is, this is the heart of the message of Christianity. Not that you have to lift your game, do better, try harder, impress God. No, this is the message. Your debt before God, like mine, is enormous. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, that debt is paid off. And the righteousness, the riches of Jesus will be credited to you. And it seems like such a simple and basic thing to say, just believe in Jesus. But it is literally life-changing. It completely changes your relationship with God and therefore with yourself and with everything else. I want to urge every single one of you here today to believe in Jesus Christ because that will do something for you in your heart and in your relationship with God that nothing else can. Check it out. Check out whether this deal is for real. Trust in Jesus and then log into your account and see how it's changed. Well, as we think about that, we have to think about the grace of Jesus. Jesus did not do this begrudgingly. It's not that Jesus drew the short straw when the Trinity were working out who would do what. He was not pressed into this by the Father. He came freely, willingly, to lay down his life for us. It says in Ephesians 5 verse 2, Christ loved us and gave himself for us. During the first year of COVID lockdowns, my youngest daughter, who was 20 at the time, fostered a cat. I didn't know you could foster cats, but uh, evidently you can. A needy cat from the uh, animal welfare centre. Now, this cat really was needy. Uh, The cat had suffered abuse 
um, had social anxiety, uh, was quite neurotic, really. Um, this, this little critter was desperate for attention, terribly nervous, pace up and down the whole time, scratch, claw, uh, wasn't allowed outside. That was one of the rules of the fostering. Don't let this cat go outside because you'd never see it again. Uh, but, oh, she was, he was hell-bent on getting outside, always pacing up and down. I, to me, this cat was just an absolute nightmare. I couldn't believe we had to have this creature in our house. But my daughter loved him to bits. She would take days off uni to stay home and look after the cat. <laughs> She'd buy him toys. Like, I'm, I'm just not into cat toys, but oh no, she bought him, bought him treats. She loved this cat to bits. When, when the foster period was up and Albie had to go back to the uh, welfare centre, she was constantly checking Albie's Facebook page. He had his own page. <laughs> to see if anyone had adopted this cat yet. She loved a neurotic cat. And Jesus Christ loved me. And to be honest, half the time I'm not much better than a neurotic cat. Anxious, pacing up and down, insecure, struggling. That's me a lot of the time. And Jesus loved me and gave his life for me. It's remarkable. And then God raised him from the dead, triumphant over sin and death. And now that means Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is seated in glory, and he continues to love his people. There he continues to pray for us and intercede for us. And he does so as one who has lived in the chaos of this world, subject to temptation and, and subject to all the pressure and ugliness and difficulty of life in this world. And so we do not have a high priest, the writer of the Hebrews said, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. And so he understands abuse, for he was abused. And he understands ridicule and rejection. And he understands temptation, for he was tempted massively by the evil one directly, face to face. And he understands suffering. And he understands death. So when you go to Jesus now with the chaos of your heart, how do you think Jesus responds as you take to a mess and trouble and I've screwed up yet again? How do you think Jesus responds? Rolls his eyes again. Shake his head. She's so disappointing. After all I did for her. He raises an eyebrow. Really? And you're a ministry leader? No, friends. That is not our saviour. You will find in Jesus remarkable grace day after day after day. You cannot exhaust his love.
You can never run dry his supply of mercy. And so to live this part of the story, we daily depend on the limitless love of Jesus. Run to him with every fear and every worry and every rejection and every temptation. Cast every burden on him and he will care for you. You can find in Jesus the most loving, faithful friend you will ever know on earth. And then there's one last thing. We've already seen this in the first stage of the story. I said that the beauty of God is transformative. And so I want to come lastly this morning to the impact of Jesus on our lives. The plan of the gospel is that we experience this amazing love of Christ and as we experience we as we experience it we are changed by it. His love recalibrates us, reorients us, remakes us. And you'll find in Jesus a love unlike you can find in your best friend or your spouse or your pastor or a counselor. They can all be wonderful people in our lives, but you'll find in Jesus something qualitatively different. I, uh, I frequently forget to water my pot plants. I notice that I haven't watered them when they kind of go, Ugh. They're all dry and they wither. Uh, so then I water them. And I tell you, when I water them, I really water them. Uh, I make up for lost time. And uh, I will soak them, like absolutely soak them. And so they, you know, the water just fills up and overflows and goes onto the saucer. And then it goes onto the table and it spills over and goes onto the floor. And then I know that I have watered the pot plants. And it's amazing. They love it. They go, woo. I'm often the same spiritually. I easily let my soul go dry and it starts to wither and go limp. But it's as though Jesus comes and waters our souls and he spares nothing. What Jesus wants to give to us is an abundance of grace that will saturate us and overflow and spill over. And so as we come and experience the love of Jesus Christ, it starts to make us more loving. It, it revitalizes us. It brings us to life. He's generous and he starts to make us more generous. He's remarkably patient and he starts to make us more patient. He's so forgiving and it starts to make us more forgiving of other people's faults and sins and even our own. As we soak in the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus and the story of the Bible, it will change us. 
I love it when you meet old, godly people. An old person, old man or old woman, who's kind of refined by a lifetime of walking with Jesus. And they're prayerful and they're wise and they're gentle and they're unflappable. They've been there before. There's this maturity and stability and wisdom and godliness to them. Do you, do you know perhaps people like that? You know what? They didn't suddenly become like that when they turned 80. They became like that by walking with Jesus for a lifetime. And him slowly shaping them and changing them and refining them through suffering, through hardship, through a bucket of stuff they've been through in their life. And as they've walked with Jesus, they have become godly. So the impact of Jesus is twofold. We experience his love and we become more loving. But how? That, that, that has to be our next question, doesn't it? Uh, how are we soaked in his love? How do we let it pervade us? Well, when we believe in Jesus, something remarkable happens. We are spiritually joined to Christ by faith. We are united to him like a branch is united to a vine. Like a finger is united to my body. This finger has not life in itself. But it's alive. It wiggles. Look. Because it's part of me. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, you become part of his body, part of his vine. I'm the vine, you're the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you cannot do anything without me. That means that the change I'm talking about, the change of life, is not us trying harder to be better and tick our boxes and lift our game. The change I'm talking about is change that comes from being in Christ, remaining in him, being united to him. Uh, if I'm in an aeroplane, if I'm in a plane, then where the plane goes, go I. Yes? I can't fly. But if I'm in a plane, I can fly. Um, if the plane goes to Paris, I go to Paris. If the plane has a smooth flight, I have a smooth flight. I'm in the plane. If I'm united to Christ, and Christ is righteous, I'm righteous. I'm in Christ. Christ died to sin, and I died to sin in him. Christ rose to newness of life, and I rose to new life in him. Christ is seated in heavenly places, and I am seated in heavenly places in him. That's remarkable news, isn't it? You have a new life in Jesus Christ. You don't have to make yourself more loving, more holy, better, lift your game. You have to remain in Christ, and he will change you. Now, 
there's activity in that. He'll, he'll help you become more obedient. He'll help you make wiser choices. But it's Christ in you and you in Christ that will bring about holiness of life. So, so again, we want to we know how. Well, how do we remain in Christ? And here, um, no bells and whistles, no big surprises, but two things. And I just want to so encourage you with these two basic things. First of all, listen to God. Listen to him through his word. Listen to what he says to you. Soak yourself in his word, in truth, in gospel. Do that corporately, together, in small groups, in big church. Do it individually. Do it in your families. Get as much Bible into your heart as you possibly can. This is not a tick box, or oh, I've read my Bible, I'm a good Christian boy or girl. No, this is, we just want to remain in Jesus Christ. We want his word to remain in us. This is how he's going to change us. This is how he's going to encourage us. This is how he's going to help us. We want to remain in his word. So try to give Bible prime time in your life. Try not to give it the dregs, the leftovers. Try to give it prime time because that is one of the places where God will powerfully work to change you. In fact, there are surveys around. There's the NCLS, National Church Life Survey, that surveys Christian churches and Christian people. And one of the sort of statistical, one of the metric findings of those surveys is that Christians who uh, have at least four times a week in personal Bible reading also almost invariably record personal spiritual growth. It's not a magic formula. This is, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit uses the Word. And if you are in God's Word, I believe you will change and grow. And then, having heard God speak, we talk back to him. Um, we, we respond to what he's saying to us. That's how all good relationships work, isn't it? It's not just talk, 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 or just listen, 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 but there's interaction. And so just as reading the Bible is one of the key ways of remaining in Christ, so fellowship with him, communion with him in prayer, is one of the key ways in which we remain in him. And we talked about it yesterday. We talked to him about absolutely everything. Joys, sorrows, struggles, trials, temptations, stuffing up again, getting it wrong, everything. He knows it all. He has forgiven it all. It's not going to make him think worse of you. He loves you with an everlasting love, and he wants you to be in relationship with him. And so something happens as we do those two things year after year after year. We grow in Christ. You, you will grow. You will change. You will face sins that you are now ready to put behind you. You'll grow. I have a, uh, a dear wee granddaughter, and she really is a wee granddaughter because she has a complicated medical condition, life-threatening condition, and one of the consequences of that is that she doesn't grow much at all. It's pretty cute, actually. <laughs> she, uh, she's kind of looked the size of a baby, but she can do everything a two-year-old can do. But she's just recently gone on to growth hormone. Uh, I was hoping to borrow some, actually, because uh, it's, it's magic stuff. Uh, 
she's going to grow now. She's started to grow. And they'll measure her over the next year and see if growth hormone is working. Daily injections. But it's going to be worth it. God's word and prayer are daily injections that are worth it. They're not spiritual jobs that you've got to tick off the list. They're the way to have a relationship with the Jesus who loves you and saves you and will grow you into his own likeness. And I think that's remarkable. Shall we pray? Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that you came to live for us and die for us and unite us to yourself so that your life is in us. Help us to remain in you. And through your word and through fellowship with you, we pray that we would grow in godliness and become more and more like you. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen.